Thanks a lot for coming today. I think we're going to get started. Glad to see we have a full house. I'm Chris Edwards, an economist at the Cato Institute. I'm also editor of our website, downsizinggovernment.org, that has lots of information about farm subsidies and food subsidies, which we're going to be talking about uh, today. I'm delighted to have Andrew, Josh, and Scott here um, from three uh, really uh, excellent Washington think tanks that I always uh, learn a lot from. I appreciate having them here, and I appreciate all you folks coming. I'm going to give about uh, 10 minutes sort of in general background on the Farm Bill, and uh, I'm going to hand it over to our Farm Bill uh, experts, and who will each, I think, talk uh, about 10 minutes themselves, and then we can open it up for Q&A. Let me give you just a, a brief sort of historical overview. Uh, the Farm Bill, as most of you probably know, is really a uh, combination of agriculture subsidies and food subsidies, particularly the food stamp program. Both of those programs have a very long history. Uh, most people think that farm subsidies started under FDR. In fact, farm subsidies have their origins in the 1920s. In 1929, Congress created the Federal Farm Board under uh, Her Herbert Hoover, uh, who, wh where the idea was to raise artificially raise commodity prices, uh, which uh, would encourage more farmers to produce more and, and give them higher incomes. Well, this board blew $500 million in a very short period of time, and writers at the time lambasted it as a boondoggle, which it was. And so that basic, the idea of uh, farm subsidies artificially propping up prices and putting more money into farmers' pockets, uh, which causes more farm production, which then redu reduces farm prices sort of in a vicious spiral. This has been going on for over eight, eight decades now. Food, the food stamp program actually had its origins in a 1939 temporary food stamp program uh, that issued stamps that could be used to purchase this excess food production caused by the USDA subsidies. Uh, LBJ made food stamps permanent in 1964. But here's something to think about, that the world has changed since both food and farm stamp programs were originally created. When, fa when farm subsidies were created, farmers had much lower incomes than other Americans, and today they have much higher incomes than other Americans. And with food stamps, when that program was created, a big problem with low-income Americans is that they didn't have enough calories. They, they didn't uh, get enough to eat. Today, it's kind of the reverse. The, the rates of obesity are actually higher in low-income Americans than other Americans today. So the original justification uh, for both farm and food subsidies has, uh, is, is really not there anymore. Uh, a few notes about cost. The, the farm bill costs about $100 billion a year, a combination of uh, the food stamp program and farm subsidies. Uh, supporters of the House and Senate um, versions uh, for the Farm Bill this year say that their bills would cut spending. Uh, and if you look at the House bill, for example, it would cut uh, $33 billion out of a 10-year baseline farm uh, bill spending of about $973 billion. So the House bill, which is a little more frugal than the Senate bill, would cut 3% uh, of farm spending over the next decade. But it's really not a cut. If you look, go back and look at the last big farm bill in 2008, that bill was scored as spending $640 billion over 10 years. The current House bill would spend $940 billion over 10 years. So by my accounting, that's a 47% increase in the cost of this farm bill compared to the last one. So all those media stories and the, and the talking points coming out of House and Senate ag committees, uh, don't believe it. The uh, House and Senate uh, farm bills are big spending increases. 
Uh, so, I, you know, I like to cut spending. I like to cut spending on farm subsidies and food subsidies. About three-quarters of the farm bill is food stamps. About a quarter is farm subsidies. So looking at the food stamps, uh, food stamp costs have roughly quadrupled over the last decade. And it's not just the recession and it's not just President Obama, as Republicans like to charge. Roughly food stamp spending doubled under President Bush and then doubled again under President Obama. And really, ever since the Clinton in the late 90s, the eligibility for food stamps has been loosened, loosened, loosened uh, over time, which is why usage has soared to about 48 million uh, people today. Food stamps, in my view, are old-fashioned welfare, and they encourage government dependency. So I see a real problem with 47 million people being hooked on food stamps. So how would I cut food stamps? Well, you know, my first best option would be to get the federal government out of food stamps altogether, let the states uh, have food stamp programs if they want. A second option would be block-granting it, which is the approach of the, uh, the House uh, budget resolution. To quote the House budget resolution, uh, Paul Ryan, quote, states receive more money if they enroll more people in the food stamp program. So their incentive is to get more people onto the rolls. The states also have little incentive to, to root out waste, fraud, and abuse, uh, unquote, in the food stamp program. A basic problem with all federal state programs where the federal government ponies up the money the states administer the programs, is that the states have no incentive to be frugal. They want to expand and expand these programs. You see the same problem with Medicaid. And that's the advantage of at least going to a block grant approach where you give the states a fixed amount of money. A third reform, which I like for food stamps, is more transparency. You know, an interesting thing with food stamps now is that you can go to a grocery store and buy basically anything you want other than cigarettes and booze. Uh, there's a huge amount of junk food bought with food stamps. And this is a, a, an interesting issue because there's a, a nutritionist and healthcare advocates and healthcare reporters have been pushing for years, pushing the USDA to release data on food stamps as to exactly where the money is being spent and what is being bought. There's a suspicion that a lot of it is junk food, but we don't know exactly. And so there's actually an organized effort now to get the USDA uh, to release more money on food stamps so at least we can have a, a more constructive criticism about uh, how the program uh, is being used and abused. So, so that's what I would suggest on, uh, on the food subsidies. On farm subsidies, I'll give you five reasons to repeal the farm subsidies, then I'll hand it over uh, to our next uh, panelist. The first reason to repeal farm subsidies is farm subsidies are basically a reverse Robin Hood program. If you look at census data on average, households in, average household incomes, farm households earn uh, this year, sorry, 2011, 25% more than the average U.S. household. So we're taking money from average tax-paying households, giving it to higher-income farm households. That makes no sense. Secondly, farm subsidies distort the economy. Farm subsidies cause overproduction, they cause the overuse of marginal farmland, they cause land price inflation, they induce less uh, efficiency in farm planting decisions, they induce excess borrowing by farmers, uh, and in my view, they cause inefficient attention to cost control. I mean, if you're a farm business, unlike any other business, uh, it, there's really no incentive to keep your costs down and to innovate uh, because the government will always bail you out when you get into, into trouble. Third, farm subsidies damage the environment. Uh, farm subsidies, as I think Scott might talk a little bit more about, uh, they, draw, they draw farmers into using marginal farmland, and they then end up using more fertilizer and pesticide on those marginal lands. You see this problem, uh, for example, with uh, the sugar subsidy program in Florida. Uh, fourth, uh, farming, you know, 
farming is no more risky when you think about it than, than many other businesses in America. If you think about the high-tech business, you think about the newspaper business these days, you think about the restaurant business these days, with, which, has very, uh, which has a very high bankruptcy rate, those industries don't get uh, handouts and bailouts from the government. Farmers are supposed to be these sort of rugged individualists, and it strikes me as fr frankly embarrassing that they're the most coddled industry in America, and I'm always amazed that farmers aren't more sort of repulsed by the idea of uh, living off uh, government welfare in Washington, and uh, uh, it really is, a, is, is kind of an amazing situation. Fifth and finally, farming would, uh, farming in my view would thrive without subsidies. Uh, many industries have been radically changed in recent years with deregulation and a reduction in subsidies. Airlines, trucking, telecom, energy industries, they've all been de deregulated, they've all gone through big changes. I think we repealed farm subsidies tomorrow. Uh, the farm, uh, the agriculture industry, uh, it th there would be a big transition, some farmers would go bankrupt, but, but farmers would adjust mainly. They would cut their costs, they would plant different crops, they would use their, they would change their land use, they would make other changes they would need to, uh, to survive, and I think in the end you'd have a stronger industry. And Exhibit A here is New Zealand, as a story that uh, some of you may be familiar with. In 1984, New Zealand, under Labour government, sort of went cold turkey, and they repealed virtually all their farm subsidies. Thirty different programs all repealed overnight. And that was a big thing for New Zealand. New Zealand was heavily, New Zealand farmers had been heavily dependent on subsidies, and New Zealand's economy in general was far more dependent on agriculture than the U.S. economy today. And the transition was tough in New Zealand. The farmers initially protested these changes, but after a while they adjusted, and New Zealand farmers turned out to be great entrepreneurs. They diversified their land use, they cut costs, and today uh, New Zealand agriculture is thriving, and the, uh, the, the, uh, the leader of, uh, of New Zealand's main uh, farm a lobby group or a, a union occasionally visits Washington. He comes to visit us at Cato, and he's, uh, he's great. He says, you know, New Zealand farmers these days, they don't want subsidies. They have found that, that farming without subsidies is the way to go, and that's, uh, and that's what they recommend to farmers around the world. So uh, I'm going to close with that. Uh, today with farm subsidies at high levels uh, and with our huge budget deficits, now would be a great time to cut farm subsidies, uh, and the House and Senate bills, frankly, just don't, just don't go far, far enough on that. So let me introduce our three panelists, and, and then I'm going to hand it over to Scott first. So, Scott Faber is VP of uh, Government Affairs at uh, the Environmental Working Group. He heads EWG uh, teams working on food and farm legislation and chemicals policies and other issues. Prior to EWG, Scott was VP of Federal Affairs at the Grocery Manufacturers Association. Before that, he was a manager of the Environmental Defense Fund. And before that, he was a senior director at American Rivers. So Scott has a huge amount of environmental-related uh, experience. After Scott, we're going to go to Andrew Moylan. Andrew is a senior fellow at R Street, where he heads up coalition efforts and conducts policy analysis. Prior to joining R Street, Andrew was VP of Government Affairs at National Taxpayers Union. He also previously worked at Cato as an education policy analyst, and he completed interns in both the House and Senate side of Congress. And finally, we're going to hear from Josh Sewell, who's a senior policy analyst at Taxpayers for Common Sense. He manages research and outreach uh, for TCS, TCS efforts to reform farm programs and also the Army Corps of Engineers. Prior to TCS, uh, Josh worked at Project Vote Smart, which is a nonpartisan voter education group. Uh, I admire the excellent policy work of all these three groups, so I think uh, our speakers will have lots of interesting things to say. 
thank you. Thank you all for coming uh, today. Thank you, Cato, for hosting this great briefing. Um, uh, just a, a, some of you may know Environmental Working Group, and, and in particular, some of you may be familiar with our, our database. One of the things that we do to help all of you uh, figure out this complicated thing called the Farm Bill is we uh, FOIA from USDA all of the subsidy data, and then we put it on our website, ewg.org, so that you can go and better understand uh, who's receiving farm payments and for what sorts of purposes. So I, I invite you to check out our website after the briefing. So. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about crop insurance, and so someone needs to lock the doors because I know that's probably not the most exciting subject in the world. And, and so, but I think, uh, and probably more than a few of you have never worked uh, or helped work help your your bosses prepare for a farm bill before. And in this particular farm bill, we expect there to be a lot of debate on the floor about the cost of crop insurance. So I want to spend a few minutes just explaining crop insurance and some of the common sense reform amendments that will be offered and, and why they're important for taxpayers and for family farmers and for the environment. So the, 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 the first thing you need to understand about crop insurance is that taxpayers help subsidize crop insurance in three ways. We pay about two-thirds of the premiums that farmers have to pay in order to buy insurance. We pay 1.3 billion dollars a year to insurance companies which are now primarily offshore to sell farmers policies and then we pay most of the claims when farmers experience a loss in revenue or or somehow somehow lose their crop so we pay three ways we pay we subsidize the uh, the premium they pay we pay insurance companies to sell them policies, and then we pay most of the claims. And, and a way for ordinary people to think about that is, is, is it would be as if the government paid two-thirds of the cost of your car insurance premium, paid GEICO to sell you that premium, and then paid most of the cost when you crash your car. But the only difference would be that under crop insurance, when you crash your car, the government would give you a nicer car. And that's because most farmers have elected to buy a kind of crop insurance, it's really revenue insurance, that actually pays them more than they thought they would get when they planted their crop in the spring. And just to think about that for a minute. So what that means is that when a farmer plants his crop in the, or her crop in the spring, she might expect to get $5.75 a bushel, as many farmers expected to get last year in the beginning of 2012. And there's a kind of policy called the harvest price option that allows farmers to get their claim not linked to what they thought they would get, $5.75 a bushel, but instead linked to the price at harvest time, which turned out to be closer to $8 a bushel. So by no, by no act of their own, instead of getting sim simply being made whole, and, which would be enormously, be, be incredibly generous by any standard, farmers are actually able to get a better car. They're able to get more in their claim than they thought they would get when they planted their crop in the spring. And just last year, that quirk of crop insurance policy wound up costing all of us an extra $6 billion. So, so I think the first thing I want you to take away from this is that we subsidize farmers in three ways, and insurance companies in at least one way, and that we wind up paying a lot more than we need to pay in order to give farmers what by any measure would be the most generous farm safety net in the world. So that's the first thing to understand. The, other th the second thing to understand is that because there are no limits, no limits whatsoever on who can receive these subsidies, or the amount that they can receive, crop insurance is incredibly inequitable, far more inequitable than the other subsidies that you've all heard about, direct payments, countercyclical payments, and so on. And because there are no limits on the amount that policyholders can receive, some individuals 
receive more than a million dollars in premium support. So e every year the government provides more than a million dollars to a, a lucky of, of a handful of the largest, most successful farm businesses in the country to help buy insurance. There are about 10,000 farmers who get more than $100,000 a year in premium support. So by contrast, the bottom 80% of, of uh, policyholders, the vast, vast majority of farmers, probably most of the farmers in, in your districts, get about $5,000 a year. So, so just to give you a sense of that, again, some guys receive uh, more than a million dollars a year in premium support. Uh, a large group receives about more than $100,000 a year. The top 1% receives, on average, $220,000 a year to buy insurance, while, the, while the, the vast majority of farmers get about 5000 bucks a year. And again, if you go to our database or you, call, you follow up with me, we can give you a better sense of what that looks like for each of your districts. So incredibly costly, incredibly inequitable, and, and getting more costly all the time. When, when just a decade ago, when, uh, or right after Congress increased the subsidies both to farmers and to insurance companies, crop insurance cost taxpayers about $2 billion a year. That's now increased to $9 billion a year. and as a result of the drought will be even higher for 2012. So that's, so that, uh, it gives you a little bit of sense of just how costly this can be, just how inequitable it can be. And th the other point, and I just want to uh, kind of touch on something that Chris said, is that because we've removed so much of the risk from these decisions, because we cover, because we're providing farmers not crop insurance the way you might think about it, helping farmers from damage from hail or drought, but essentially providing them a business income guarantee, because we've removed almost all of the risk from farming, many farmers are choosing to farm in places where they wouldn't if they were simply responding to the market. And as crop insurance subsidies have grown over the last decade, we've seen, and, and you, again, you, we've documented it using USDA data, that farmers are plowing up an unprecedented amount of wetland and prairie to grow more crops. It just makes more sense, and frankly, it makes total sense, to plant in places where you wouldn't when the government's guaranteeing your business income. And so over the last four years, We've seen farmers plow up about 23 million acres of prairie and wetland. That's just to give you a sense of that's an area about the size of Indiana. Just in the last four years, that's been plowed up primarily to grow corn, beans, and wheat. To give you a different perspective on it, that's more wetland and prairie prairie loss in the last four years than we've seen in the last 40 years. And while there are other factors driving this conversion and all the environmental impacts associated with plowing up land releasing a lot of the carbon in the atmosphere, applying more, a lot more chemical to the land that winds up in rivers and streams, uh, replacing habitat for wildlife with cornfields. Um, it's, uh, it's still, it's, it's, a dr it's a dramatic change in, in, the, in the landscape. Um, so the good news is, and I'll turn it over to Andrew, is that there are a number of uh, bipartisan common sense reform amendments that we expect will be offered on the floor. Um, and that uh, have also are, have either already been offered in the Senate or will be next week. Um, first and foremost, and one that just prevailed last week, is an amendment to simply say that if you are one of the largest, most successful businesses, farm businesses in the country, you should you can still receive premium support. You can still receive a lot of premium support, but you will just get 15% less. So what that means for the largest premium policy, largest policyholder in the country. Um, a, a policyholder in Florida who grows peppers and tomatoes in five counties is that instead of getting $1.9 million in premium support, that person will get $1.6 million in premium support. Uh, 
doesn't sound like a lot, but when you apply it across the largest, most successful farm businesses in the country, or in other words, when you apply it to farms that have an adjusted gross income of more than $750,000, I'll just footnote that and we can cover what that means later, you generate about a billion dollars in savings over 10 years. It's not, certainly it's not uh, much of a dent in a $955 billion bill, but it's a step in the right direction. Other amendments that we expect to be offered, and, and many of these ideas are included in a bill that Congressman Petri and Congressman Kind uh, introduced a few weeks ago, uh, would be simply capping the amount of subsidy that can go to a particular farmer at $50,000. That's similar to the payment limit that we've applied to other farm subsidies and that many of your bosses have voted for if they've been here for past farm bills. Um, that amendment would save about a little bit less than $4 billion over 10 years. Um, there'll also be amendments uh, that could save significantly more. Um, one that Senator Flake is going to offer in the Senate um, and that we hope someone will offer here in the House would simply say that farmers can no longer get the nicer car uh, through this, this policy called the harvest price option. If you simply said to farmers, look, we'll still subsidize you to buy basic revenue protection, which means we'll make you whole, we'll pay you, we'll base your claim based on what you thought you would get when you planted your crop in the spring, just doing that would save the taxpayer about $8 billion over 10 years. So now we're starting to talk about real money. If you took it a step further, uh, and Senator Flake's introduced a bill to do this, not clear whether he'll file this as an amendment, but, but if you took it further and said, look, you know what, we've been paying two-thirds of your premium support for the last 10 years, and household, by any measure, agriculture is having the best years imaginable. Every measure of farm income, net farm income, farm household income, farm equity, net cash returns, they're all off the charts. So maybe we could ask you over time to bear more of the cost of your premium support, let's say reduce that over time to uh, a third instead of two thirds. And uh, Mr. John, uh, Mr. Johnson has introduced, sorry, Mr. Duncan has introduced a bill uh, to, to do just that. That would save the taxpayers. Again, we're still paying a third of their premium support, more, providing more subsidy than any other industry in the country ever, has ever gotten. A third of their premium support, that would save about $40 billion over 10 years. So, we're starting to see some, some real change. So I think, um, why don't I stop there and just say, um, crop insurance is going to be uh, an incredible opportunity for reform. All of the reforms that you'll get a chance, your bosses will get a chance to debate, will preserve the, one of the, what is really still the most generous safety net that any farmer anywhere in the world benefits from. Um, but it would make, but some, many of these reforms would significantly reduce cost reduce the incentive to plow up lands that farmers wouldn't otherwise if they were responding to the market, and would make the farm safety net much more equitable. And at the end of the day, these are policies that should help farmers who need help, not incredibly successful businesses who, who frankly don't need as much support. So turn it over to Andrew. Thanks, Scott, and uh, thanks to Chris and our friends at Cato for putting this together. Uh, my name is Andrew Moylan. I'm a senior fellow and outreach director at the R Street Institute. For those of you who don't know R Street, it is a relatively new uh, free market think tank. We're actually celebrating our first birthday uh, in like a week and a half, two weeks, Monday, whenever it is. Happy birthday. Lori knows. Um, so, uh, and we're actually having a birthday party. We're getting ourselves a cake. Um, so, uh, our street is a, a free market think tank. We work on, uh, we, we try to take sort of a pragmatic approach to public policy. Uh, we work 
trying to advance free markets, limited government, but also responsible environmental stewardship. And what that means basically for us uh, is trying to figure out how do we orient federal policy in a way that's less expensive for taxpayers and that's less costly for the environment. And usually what that means is just reducing dumb subsidies, right? So the, the big thing that that has meant for our organization in the first year of our existence uh, was working on uh, reforming the National Flood Insurance Program last year, where we have all of these subsidies for coastal development that are also harmful to wildlife habitat and put people in harm's way when there are storms, things like that. Uh, so trying to figure out ways to reduce costs for taxpayers and reduce costs in the environment. So that's kind of how we approach the Farm Bill, too. And the way I, I want to sort of set the stage for a second, uh, and, and Scott touched on this, but I want to hammer it home, uh, the environment in which we're operating right now. So we have, as we mentioned, record farm incomes by any measure. Uh, we have record commodity prices or near record commodity prices by any measure. And we have near record fiscal challenges uh, by any measure, as far as the eye can see. And so in that sense, the, the, the broader environment is never going to be better for reforming something like the Farm Bill than it is right now. Uh, and, and more specifically, I would say that uh, we have a situation now where we have the, the response to that has been from the Ag Committee on the House side and on the Senate side has been to draft bills that uh, I think fall very far short of what most of us would consider serious reforms. Uh, the Senate bill is a $955 billion monstrosity that does very little uh, to appropriately reform farm programs or, or food stamps or others. The House bill is largely the same. In some ways, it's actually worse uh, than the Senate bill, $940 billion. Uh, and so the response from the, the committees on both sides has not been terribly encouraging. And so that's why the real fight here is going to be on the floor. It's on the floor in the Senate now, uh, and that's where there will be amendments to, to, uh, to approach some of the reforms that Scott talked about. And that's going to be where the fight is on the House side, too. Our understanding at this point is that the Farm Bill is likely to be on the floor at some point uh, in June or July or whenever it ends up being. Uh, and that's the point where your bosses are going to have an opportunity to offer amendments, to support good things, to make these reforms on the floor that can't be made in the committee uh, for various reasons. So I, I should point out what, what I think our ideal farm bill would look like. My ideal farm bill would probably be a blank sheet of paper. Um, and so, but it's, it's very clear that we're not going to get my ideal farm bill any time in my lifetime. And so we as an organization are focusing on a couple of things. Uh, I'll point out on the, on the food and nutrition side, we're supportive of all kinds of efforts to take what we think are common sense, make what we think are common sense reforms uh, to prevent, for example, states abusing uh, heating assistance to try to plus up food stamp benefits, categorical eligibility. Those things all make sense. But, but most of what we're focusing on is on the farm side. Uh, and for a couple of reasons. One, we think that it's uh, particularly ripe for reform. There are, there's a, really a decades-long history of cooperation between uh, people in nonprofit institutions and members of Congress from all across the ideological spectrum uh, aligning in support of reforming agriculture subsidies. And just one example of that, uh, at the end of last year, Senate Democrats put forward their sequester replacement plan, and in their sequester replacement plan was an elimination of direct payments, uh, direct payment subsidies and, uh, that are processed through the Farm Bill now, uh, and replacing it with nothing. And so 
that's Senate, what Senate Democrats are doing. And obviously, there's a long history of conservatives who have been active on trying to reform agriculture subsidies as well. So uh, we think that that side is particularly ripe for reform. Uh, and that's why a big part of the reason why we're focusing there. So on farm policy, what are the kind of specific reforms that we think are possible? There are lots of things I'd like to do. Uh, I won't be able to do all of them. So what what's possible? Uh, Scott touched on some of the uh, reforms to crop insurance. Crop insurance is now our largest support for farmers. Uh, it's something that both the House and Senate bills envision expanding uh, the amount of, of subsidy that we're doing through that program. So again, seems like uh, the logical choice uh, to start for reforms. So we put together a letter that was signed by a wide range of conservative organizations, Heritage Action for America, Americans for Prosperity, on down the line. And basically, we laid out what we thought were five staple structural reforms to crop insurance that we think made sense. Uh, the first one was means testing. So Scott touched on this. But the idea that uh, if you have a net income, I'd like to see it as low as possible, you know, 250000 I'd like it even lower than that. But the two sorts of proposals that float are either 250000 or 750000 adjusted gross income. So that's net farm income for somebody. Uh, if you have an income above that level, we either don't subsidize your crop insurance or we reduce it by a certain percentage, uh, as Scott pointed out. That's something that structurally makes all the sense in the world to make sure that we're not subsidizing large, profitable agribusinesses. Uh, the second thing, and Scott touched on this, is a payment limit. Again, that comes directly out of the direct payments program that, for all of its warts, at least had a couple of sort of basic taxpayer protections to keep costs from spiraling out of control. One of them was a payment limit that said, per farmer, you can't get more than $50,000 so that we're not paying out huge uh, million-dollar payments to people. Uh, the third thing, and this is in the Senate bill, uh, but is not in the House bill, and so is something that I think will be important, um, and we've been focusing on a lot, is called conservation compliance. It's not something that immediately... Uh, rings a bell for most conservatives, but basically what the policy says is that uh, we're not going to spend taxpayer dollars, uh, public dollars, uh, subsidizing people who are engaging in harmful uh, farming tactics. And so if you're going to be farming on highly erodible land or draining wetlands or something like that, you have to have a conservation plan. Uh, that's what that policy is. We think it's a common sense, completely consistent with conservative principles way uh, to, again, restrict subsidies for dumb things. It's a dumb thing to farm on highly erodible land. Uh, and so we'd like to uh, restrict the scope of the subsidy so that it doesn't include that. Um, the fourth thing is transparency, which Scott didn't mention, uh, or at least not in real depth. But um, we have in direct payments, and, and Scott's database at EWG shows this, full transparency in who receives direct payment subsidies. So I went in, I live in 22202. I typed in my zip code in their database, and guess who the number two uh, recipient of farm subsidies has been in my zip code? Uh, Chuck Grassley, which is because Chuck Grassley operates a family farm back home in Butler County, Iowa. Um, and so, you know, I, I just thought it was interesting. I, I don't necessarily begrudge Senator Grassley, who's actually in some ways doing, uh, trying to do good work on, on these issues. Um, but that's, that kind of transparency allows us to know who we're paying, who we as taxpayers are subsidizing, uh, where their farms are located, what they're doing. Uh, that makes perfect sense. It's something that does not happen in crop insurance today. And if we're expanding crop insurance, if we're basically replacing uh, direct payments with an expansion of crop insurance, we ought to have the same kind of protections uh, and limitations that we had in direct payments. And that's one of them. 
And so I think that the 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 final thing, and actually I'm sort of cheating. There are really two things, but um, the final thing uh, that we mentioned in the letter is uh, talking about the the subsidies that are paid for the companies that are providing the policies as well. I think a lot of principal, a lot of conservatives have a principles-based concern with the idea that we're subsidizing farmers to purchase policies, we're subsidizing companies to sell policies, and then we're also paying most of the indemnities. Uh, that's something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, the reason I said I was cheating is that uh, one thing we didn't cover in that letter, but it's something we did in another letter when we wrote in support of uh, Congressman Johnson, uh, excuse me, Duncan, I did the same thing you did, uh, John Duncan, there's two Duncans, so you have to uh, clarify. Uh, Congressman Duncan in the House side and, and Senator Flake uh, on the Senate side, the idea of reducing the percentage uh, of premium subsidy from the 62% level, which is our average now, back to what uh, prevailed in, uh, back in 2000, which was about 37, uh, 38%. Um, and so just doing that alone saves you $40 billion dollars saying instead of, instead of paying almost two-thirds of your premium, we'll pay a little more than a third of it, saves you $40 billion. And so uh, that's something that we have been pursuing as well and, and hope to see some action on, uh, on both sides of the chamber. So the, there are a couple of other things that I think are areas that are really ripe for reform, uh, shallow loss programs, uh, which have been a, a big source of controversy in this farm bill. The idea that we're protecting farmers against uh, basically any kind of loss in operating their businesses. And so I've said uh, only half uh, jokingly to some congressional offices that, that I think it would be a great idea for somebody to draft an amendment that says, you know what, I think that shallow loss is such a great idea that we should extend it to every industry in the country. <laughs> Right. If we're going to protect farmers from shallow losses, let's let's do it for everybody and and get it scored by CBO and see what the number is. Because I think that if you were to extend that principle across the economy, uh, the the cost to taxpayers would be astronomical. Uh, who knows? Ten trillion dollars, twenty trillion dollars. Uh, the world may never know. But uh, b but just to illustrate. Uh, just how peculiar and unique farm policy is, where we have uh, an industry that is probably unparalleled in the world in terms of the support that it gets from its government. Uh, and so we think that we think that the time is now that uh, basically, you know, you, you guys as staffers and your bosses deal with a tremendous number of very difficult issues, and you've got a parade of people coming in at all times talking about how difficult what you're trying to do is, is going to make their lives. Um, and as difficult as this stuff is, this is as easy as it gets. Right? Every other fight that you're going to have is going to be harder than this one. Because on this one, all of the facts, the sort of objective facts, at, at least in, in my mind, objective facts, line up in favor of reform. Uh, we talked about the you know, record prices and incomes and, and fiscal challenges, all that stuff. Uh, and in addition to that, there's this broad sort of bipartisan cross-ideological consensus that has existed uh, for decades. And so th there are no other issues where that is true, where everybody sort of agrees this is the low-hanging fruit, there's broad support for, for tackling this stuff, uh, and the real challenge is getting past the sort of special interest and in, in industry politics. Uh, and that's what getting to the floor is hopefully going to be able to do uh, in, in being able to make some of those changes. So uh, that's what we're focusing on, and, and we're working uh, to try to generate support from conservative organizations like ours and others, and, and also working with our friends in the environmental and conservation communities 
to try to push good reforms. I, I have a copy of our letter out there in support of the Kind Petri uh, Affirm Act, which for those of you who are House staffers is uh, something you should definitely be looking, uh, looking to and hopefully supporting. Um, so we're going to be uh, plugging away. And uh, I, I always say on things like this, I'm crossing my fingers, but I'm not holding my breath. So I apologize if uh, my voice disappears in the middle of this, so I'll try to keep it a little brief. Um, about three quarters of my job at taxpayers is to work on agriculture reform, and the other three quarters of my job is to work on Corps of Engineers reform. So I spend a significant amount of time over in the, uh, call it the senior ward side of the Capitol, and I think there's more germs over there than there are over here. So I don't want to drone on and be a, uh, be a uh, just be a repeating record here because Scott, Andrew, and I, we tend to agree on basically everything when it comes to crop insurance and uh, shallow loss programs. Um, and that's actually one of the unique things about this issue is that, you know, what we like to work on at Taxpayers for Common Sense, in case you're not familiar with us, we are a 501c3 nonprofit uh, budget watchdog. And uh, we don't have an ideological axe to grind. We're not environmentalists. We don't oppose taxes. We actually work with anybody who goes with our ideals, which is basically we want a government that we pay for. Whatever side you guys demand as voters, that's what we have to pay for. And so this is one of those issues where uh, we've often been called the hyphen and the left-right alliance, or left-right coalitions, and I think it works very well on this. So there's a few things I want to focus on, and one of the first things is I think we need to talk about what the farm bills are not. What you've heard for the last year or two years on these farm bills is that these are deficit reduction bills. In the Senate, they said last year, this is the only bipartisan deficit reduction bill we've passed through this entire Congress. I can tell you right now, that's not true. Uh, and I can tell you it's not true just by doing math. So in the packet of information I provided out there, there's a letter that we did, which was very simple. And it was, I was going to call, call it, it's just math. But instead, it was taxpayers won't harvest farm bill savings. Because all we did is we looked at the CBO score for the 2002 farm bill, looked at it year by year, did the same thing for the 2008 farm bill, looked at it year by year, and then we looked at what actually happened in all of those programs that were affected by those bills. 2002 Farm Bill scored at $451 billion. The 10 years that have already happened actually cost $588 billion. It's a 30% cost overrun, slightly off. 2008 Farm Bill scored at $604 billion. It's on pace now, at least when I did this last fall, it's actually gone up a little. $913 billion. That's a 50% cost overrun. So when someone comes to you and says, I've got a trillion dollar bill, but I promise over the next 10 years, you're going to save 23 to $40 billion you shouldn't believe them. And again, it's just math. And specifically, there's a couple of reasons that you shouldn't believe in this, because in the existing farm bills, there's actually more spending next year than there would be under the baseline because of the disaster aid. So they're promising to cut spending later if they can just increase a little bit of spending for next year. And about 60% of the savings in the CBO score occurs five years, in the, in the out five years of the 10-year score, which, by the way, is after another farm bill will be passed. So you know, we don't want to trade savings that we can get now for promised savings in the futures. That's what we've been doing basically since the dawn of this country, um, and especially in the last few years. And so what we need to do instead is to realize the actual savings that are on the table and harvest those. The other thing that th these bills are not is they are not reflective of our drought experience. These bills were written 
almost completely before the 2012 drought. This expansion into shallow loss, this expansion into crop insurance, this was already baked in before we had, before anybody knew we were going to have this drought. So if they come telling you that we have to have this and this is written in response to the drought, that again is, we'll say, not true. Um, so what we need to do instead is realize that disasters have a short, uh, short half-life. And what that means is, we, as Andrew said, we have to strike while the iron is hot. The experience of the worst growing conditions in my lifetime, which was last year, which is true. As a Missourian, I've seen it when I go back and visit the family. We have a Nebraska office. We see it when we go there. It was the worst growing conditions, in the, in, at least in my lifetime, and one of the worst years in the history of our country. It was the second most profitable year for, for agriculture. Part of that is just economics. Decreased supply, static or increased demand, increased prices. The sector is doing great. Some individuals aren't. But for the most part, because of the safety net we have now, many of the individual producers are actually doing okay as well. And it's been that way for years. It's not the 1980s, and it's not the 1970s. We need to stop fighting the, the agriculture battles of the past and start reorienting the safety net for what we face now. And so what we need in these bills is a complete reorientation of our ag policy, as we've talked about here. And at the very least, right now, take steps in that direction and see where we can get the market, the private market, to provide risk management options, risk management tools, and not simply displace them because it's convenient or because it's in the parochial interest of certain members of Congress, because that is the path we're on right now. So I think what is most important about looking at, as you're getting, especially if you work over here in the House, as you look at the, at the farm bill as it comes up is we need to actually evaluate where our safety net is too generous, not just where it wasn't helping people. Because if we come through what, again, is one of the worst growing conditions, supposed to be one of the worst years ever in agriculture, and we don't have farm businesses failing left and right, we probably did some stuff right. But when farms are still consolidating and the people who are retiring, and when you have retirements in farms and the farms are just getting larger and larger, and people are buying farms in pure cash, it's probably a little too generous. And so what we need is some actual hard evaluation of what is there. And instead of just doing what the farm bills are doing, which is piling onto the crop insurance program, they're literally, well, they actually are literally turning over every rock they can find to find new things to insure. So since the farm bill, since the drought occurred and we had a farm bill in the Senate and now we're coming to this, we've had a number of new crop insurance policies. Popcorn producers, business interruption for uh, poultry producers. There's one specifically a catfish margin protection insurance. And now we're going to have a seafood harvester insurance um, that's come out of the Senate. I don't know how you're going to figure out how to provide crop insurance for seafood harvesters. My assumption is you're going to look for, we're, they're assuming they're going to get jumbo shrimp and they get regular shrimp and we make up the difference. Um, it's a little cynical, but I honestly have no idea how that's going to work. And frankly, RMA doesn't either. But these are the mandates that are coming from the Senate and many of those are going to come from the House as well. So the second thing to look at is what the farm bills actually are. And I would argue that these farm bills are actually baseline protection bills. And so what that means is the ag committees are not looking at the ag safety net and saying, this is the amount of money we spent. Do we need to spend this money? They're saying, this is the amount of money we control. How do we keep it? And that's why they're adding on these new crop insurance plans and not taking any off uh, and not really reining them in at all. And they're also creating, as Andrew mentioned, these shallow loss in income entitlement programs. And so there's three of these. It's not just one. There's three of them. It's one called supplemental coverage option, which is in the crop insurance program. It's one called stacks that's in the crop insurance program only for cotton. No one else can use it. And then there's another one called, in the Senate, it's ARC, and over here, uh, if you're a House member, it's, it's the revenue loss uh, coverage. And that's actually in Title I. 
And what that would do is it would take the almost $50 billion that we will save, savings in hand, we have this in hand, everybody wants to get rid of direct payments. Everybody that matters wants to get rid of direct payments. As well as Acre and uh, Target, the countercyclical program, that's $50 billion we will save. These bills say we're going to squander $27 billion of that on these new income entitlement programs that are creating a layer of loss of protection that's on top of this already overly generous crop insurance. And in discussing this with, uh, with some members of the Senate last year, um, we came up with this analogy called the subsidy sandwich. And there's, a, there's an image of it in the package of information that I left out there. It's also on our website. And it was actually the actual image was created by Senator Paul's office. But the fact is that we're massively subsidizing crop insurance. You actually get a free cr catastrophic crop insurance policy. You just pay a filing fee. Layered on top of that is a, is a meaty layer of, the, of these uh, insurance subsidies that we've talked about to get you to higher layer, uh, levels. And at the very top is, again, in ARC, it's free layer of shallow loss on top of that that's trying to get rid of your, your, even that small deductible that you still have in crop insurance. And frankly, it's a, it's a subsidy sandwich, and it's one taxpayers can't choke down. And so that's actually one of the things that we're most adamant about is, is actually just realizing the savings that's on the table and not squandering on these new programs that are going to benefit an industry that's actually doing pretty well and can actually be asked to do more. So that's the other thing that these bills do is they turn a deaf ear to the economic reality and a blind eye to the deficit. Again, the ag economy is booming. They can do more. And sequestration is in full force. That's something that also wasn't happening last year. Everybody was assuming sequestration would magically take care of itself. Well, it hasn't. We're in sequestration. This bill, both the Senate and the House bill so far, would actually, despite their CBO scores, would actually increase spending on crop insurance. They would increase spending on these new shallow loss programs. They're actually going to make Washington more involved in the economy of, the, of, of, of agriculture as opposed to less. So while we're grounding fighters because they can't train, while we're taking money out of Head Start, while we're taking, while we were almost going to close FAA towers, well, there's all these kind of things that have real-world effects. We're telling agriculture, you're getting record profits or near-record profits. We're going to give you more. It's a total disconnect for what we actually need to do in this country. And so I think what we need to do instead is we need folks over here to provide real leadership to step back and say, what is Washington's role in agriculture? And then you can say, if you believe there's a role that Washington should play in agriculture, which I know there are some people who don't believe there should be a safety net in agriculture, then what are the steps we can take to get towards that more right-sized safety net? And no matter what you believe, you also have to say, what can we afford to do? And that's a distinction. We have a gold-plated system in crop insurance. We cannot, it's just math, we cannot afford a platinum layer on top of it. So at the very least, absolute least, we cannot create three redundant shallow loss programs <coughs> to guarantee business income for a very profitable sector of the economy. And we've already covered numerous specific steps to bring the market more to bear and to pull agriculture, to pull the Washington just a little bit out of agriculture. So I'm not going to go over those. But the last couple of things that we absolutely need you folks to do is to, instead of doing what we've always done, CBO is not, CBO is not going to change their rules. They're not allowed to. They're not allowed to assume the worst case scenarios. Your bosses need to assume the worst case scenario. Instead of predicting a $604 billion farm bill, having it turn out to be more like a $900 or a trillion dollar bill, let's pass a $900 billion bill that turns out to only cost $700 billion, and then we can actually start to get our deficit under control. We need to be more conservative in our assumptions and not just do the bare minimum that we're being forced to do under sequestration and these other 
uh, uh, these, these other efforts. And so in general, we also need a, just a broader, just to wrap this up, a broader look at what are we doing in agriculture. And there's some really easy things we can do. In the cynicism of using nutrition programs to deflect a serious conversation about agriculture supports. We need to look at nutrition programs and we need to look at the business side. Those are two different conversations. We can find savings in both. Frankly, we need to repeal permanent law. The dairy, the, the dairy fiscal cliff, or the dairy cliff, it's a made up problem. The only reason we have permanent law that we don't repeal, we only, we only uh, suspend, is so that every five years we can be forced to, to pass a farm bill. That's a fact. Ask Colin Peterson. He will give you a quote to talk about it. Um, and also, finally, we just need to wake up to the reality that 650 almost, I'm exaggerating, I guess it's $642 billion projected deficit isn't good enough. There's, a, there's deficit creep that's happening even on this side of the, of the capital. I'm not surprised it happens on the other side. $642 billion is not good enough. If I had told you that five years ago that a $650 billion deficit was going to be a-okay, I would have been left out of the building. We need to get that attitude back here. And ag can do more. They're not doing their part. But it's us to us. It's up to us, and it's up to you guys to get your bosses to show them how to do it. So that's what we encourage you to do.